0: Well, if you would please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. The second chapter of Luke's Gospel as we resume studying this wonderful account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. One in which Luke presents to us here in these early chapters. A picture of how Jesus came into the world and of how he was being prepared as the Messiah who would... Be the Savior of all who believe. Luke chapter 2, and uh, this morning what we're going to read is verses 21 through 32, and stop kind of right in the middle of a section as we consider the first part of this section here this morning of Jesus being presented at the temple. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man at Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said now lord you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the gentiles and the glory of your people israel what is a testimony a testimony some of you or most of you in fact hopefully all of you have a testimony and certainly it would be my desire that you would all have a testimony of salvation, of saving faith in Christ. This is often what we think of in a Christian context when we think about the idea of a testimony. I told someone my testimony. I shared my testimony. In fact, this is part of our process for people being added formally to the church by virtue of sending out a testimony of the Lord's work in bringing them to salvation so that we can present that before the church body as part of the testing process. What has God done in your life? What is the gospel that you have believed? How have you seen God bring you from sin into saving faith? And what has he done in your life since then? We think of a testimony as telling our story. And so it is. But in more general terms, in a less technical sense, a testimony is simply a statement of witnessing to something. Of something that you have seen. You're recounting something that happened. You are testifying about an experience or an observation. Maybe you're even testifying in a way where you are commending something or you are testifying against someone. But the point is that you are telling others about something. You're telling other people what you saw you're telling other people what you heard you're telling what went on in the previous scene in Luke's gospel Jesus birth has been announced chapter 2 verses 1 through 20 that very familiar what we call a Christmas passage where Jesus was born in Bethlehem as his parents Mary and Joseph came there and there was no room for him in the end so where was he placed he was placed in a manger He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And there were shepherds in the field and the angels stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. And then what happened? But a number of other angels appeared saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So the shepherds go to Bethlehem and they see this thing. They see what God has made known to them and they find the child. Jesus' birth... Has been announced, But now in this passage, the significance of Jesus, not the entire significance, there's a whole gospel yet to come for that. There is a whole series of epistles to the churches and letters in the New Testament, even the revelation of Jesus Christ that tells us more about that. But starting in this way and as a foundation, the significance of who has just been born is being announced. He is being testified to, and it is the first truly open public testimony about Jesus and who he is. Again, he has already been announced in certain ways to certain individual people and even to this small group of shepherds who were in the field who then passed it along to other certain people. But this is the place where Jesus is starting to be announced publicly. Now, this is, of course, three decades Before his public ministry would take place and where he would be made known to Israel and presented to Israel in the most widespread sense. But nonetheless, here he is now sort of being brought out into the open. Outside the confines of just his family and his neighbors. Outside the confines of just a few people who know that this is going on. And he is being spoken about openly by other people and reliable people at that. People whose testimony about the Christ, about who this child is, matters. Simeon is one of them. Anna is the other. And we'll read about her when we get to verse 36. These are people who would be reliable in their testimony people who would speak not just about Christ but who would speak the truth about Christ and when they speak about Christ in this setting they're telling us things that God wants us to hear because they're speaking divine truth they're speaking prophetic truth and here we find these things revealed about who Jesus is and we in the process have confirmed for us all of the facts and the promises and the claims that were made by the other people early on in Luke chapter 1 as well. Now the accounts of the birth and the childhood of John And Jesus are told to us in these first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. We've had a promise to Zacharias and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who were without a child, that they would have a son in their old age and that they would name him John. We have a promise to the Virgin Mary that she would, by the Holy Spirit, conceive the Son of God and that she was to name him Jesus. We have a prophetic testimony about John upon his birth by his formerly mute, or temporarily anyway, mute, father Zacharias. And then we have a prophetic testimony about Jesus upon his birth by the angels who related it to the shepherds who then related it to Jesus' parents. But the events of the rest of the chapter revolve around the place where these two chapters began, which is where? In the temple in Jerusalem. It brings us back to this point At the beginning of these chapters, in chapter 1, verse 5 is where the narrative account begins, uh, Zacharias is serving in the temple. He's performing his priestly service before God in the temple. And now we return to the temple a few months later for the rest of the events that tell us about the childhood and the pre-adulthood of Jesus himself. And there are two key events in the rest of the chapter. We're going to look at the first one this morning and next week. And then we will look at the other to follow. This one is about people testifying who Jesus is. And it tells us right up front who he is. Before he ever ministers to anyone publicly. Before he ever does a miracle. Before he ever does a sign. Before he ever preaches anything. We find out who Jesus is decades before his adulthood. And in this passage what we're going to find is this. That God brings Jesus to the temple for a special meeting with spirit-filled people who are going to publicly testify to the identity and the future of this special child. Again, God brings Jesus to the temple for a special meeting with spirit-filled people who are going to testify publicly to the identity and the future of this future or to the future of this special child. And so we begin in verses 21 through 24 with Jesus' consecration. To the Lord consecration being set apart to the Lord dedicated to him for a special task and as belonging to him and it begins with his circumcision in verse 21 when eight days had passed before his circumcision Now, we don't need to go too much into this at this point because we already considered this ritual in chapter 1 when it was done for John, John the Baptist. This was, of course, the custom for every boy born in Israel. But it wasn't just a custom of the times. It was a custom of the law, a requirement of the law, in fact. And it wasn't even just a requirement of the law, but it was something that predated the law by centuries. It was given originally as a sign to the Jews all the way back during the lifetime of their ultimate forefather, Abraham. And Abraham was told when God made a covenant with him to bless him and his descendants and to give them a land and to bless all the nations of the earth through them, he gave them a promise. And he said, here is the sign that goes with that promise. Every male among you, eight days old, shall be circumcised. This would set them apart from the nations. They would even look down on the other nations, such as when David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? It was a sign of distinction between them and the other nations. And so God gave this sign as a sign of an everlasting covenant between him and Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants that every male eight days old was to be circumcised. And so then the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was then incorporated into the law given through Moses at Mount Sinai after Israel had been rescued from Egypt hundreds of years later. Jesus' parents then were doing exactly what the law of Moses required and really what everyone else in that time did. But something more unique happened with Jesus, which is his naming. His naming, not the fact of his naming. Every child was ultimately named. But the particular name that was given to him. His name was then called Jesus, which is a special name because it was, it says, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is a small and seemingly obvious act of obedience, but it was nonetheless an act of obedience it's a symbol that Mary and Joseph were obedient to the Lord and that they trusted him and that they believed that what they had said what God had said about this child was in fact who he was going to be and in this it's a reminder as well that the Lord had been faithful to his own promise that he had given them this son through miraculous means well with this preliminary function out of the way of his circumcision and his being named according to what had been instructed to them the next step uh, arrives, the next step in the process of the ceremony for a newborn child and in particular for a firstborn son. And so just over a month later, we will find his family's journey to Jerusalem, his family's journey to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 22, they brought him up to Jerusalem. They brought him up to Jerusalem. There are two reasons why they went to Jerusalem and both of these are sort of part and parcel of what the law required and they were to be done at the same time together the first reason they took him up was for Mary's purification Mary's purification it says here in verse 22 when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed And what we find in the scripture is that when a child was born a woman became unclean not physically unclean although Certainly there may have been something of that involved, but ceremonially unclean, ceremonial unclean, which would have meant that she couldn't participate in certain religious activities for a time until she was made clean again. Now, this is not the only time someone became unclean. It's not as if God has a thing against women who have just had children. Uh, this was the kind of thing that could take place for any number of circumstances. And if you want to read about this, you can read through the book of Leviticus and you'll find all kinds of things that can make someone unclean. This was just kind of a constant cycle that people went through. They were unclean if they touched this, they were unclean if they did this, they were unclean if this happened. And they had to go through these rituals and these ceremonies all the time. It was a reminder. In one sense, that only God is the one who never has to make himself clean again. And it was the means by which they would constantly relate to God, one of the means by which they would constantly relate to God. And involved in cleansing themselves were certain sacrifices that we'll read about here in a moment. Now, for a boy who was born, there were seven days, and then his circumcision on the eighth day, and then 33 days afterward for a total of 40. Seven plus 33. For a girl, you would double it now we're actually going to skip ahead for a moment to verse 24 because it describes the offering itself that would have been brought with regard to this purification from her uncleanness and so verse 24 it says and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Uh, this simply referred to some type of small bird in these families a small pigeon a small dove turtle dove it's hard to distinguish exactly what would have meant as far as species go by either of these there's not a definitive statement necessarily about what exactly these were but we know that they were small birds in this family and this was a command that was given sometimes in the context of a guilt offering Leviticus 5 verse 7 talks about this but that's not really the primary reference here Instead, it is in Leviticus chapter 12. And I want to ask you to turn there with me just so that you can see where this all comes from. Turn back with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 12. This was a command in Leviticus. This was a series of commands that were given while Israel was at Mount Sinai. God had given the law of Moses uh, to Israel. And... Then he was giving them a number of instructions about the priesthood, about offerings and sacrifices, and now he's giving them in these chapters 11 through 15 a number of things about cleanness, uncleanness, ceremonial purity, and so on. But he gives this specific instruction here, starting in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification. Are completed. You can see here for a daughter in verse 5, the time periods are twice as long, but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for sixty six days. He goes on, when the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one year old lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. The one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. This is exactly what is going on here. You say, this doesn't really sound like the kind of thing that I was coming to church expecting to hear about. Learning about purification after someone has been born and these various offerings in the book of Leviticus. But you can see here, this was the reality for people who lived under this system. This is what they had to do very careful, very detailed, and they followed it down to the exact letter. They did everything exactly as was here. I mean, you can, if you knew Leviticus 12 at all and you read Luke chapter 2, you go, yeah, they got that from there and there and there. It's almost like they were just summarizing the chapter and then saying Mary and Joseph did all of that. You might note here as well in Luke chapter 2, as has often been pointed out, that they offered the sacrifice that was God's provision for sort of the poor man's version of this offering. Which would indicate that Mary and Joseph were at least not very well off. Now this doesn't mean that they were completely impoverished. But they certainly weren't rich. And so they offered the birds because they could not afford a lamb. That was the reason why they did that there. But they did what God said. They obeyed the law. They sacrificed as he had prescribed. And that was one of the ways that they followed God's instruction about a newborn. But that's not the only one. There was also another And we see this also back in luke chapter 2 that there was a second way that they obeyed god's prescription they brought him up to jerusalem not just for mary's purification but for jesus presentation for jesus presentation they brought him up to jerusalem it says to present him to the lord verse 22 to present him to the lord what does this signify is this a baby dedication As is often practiced in modern churches. Is this like the child Samuel being presented to the Lord. Brought out of his home and given to someone in the temple. In this case Eli. To be a permanent servant even from his youth. Well it's not these things. But rather the text tells us that something specific is in view. And it tells us where it comes from. Verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord. There is a biblical reason why they're doing this. Luke is telling us why. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Why is this done? Why is this the case? Well, the reference goes back to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, of course, we learn about what? The Exodus of the sons of Israel. From where? From Egypt. And when did they exit? When did they make their exodus? From Egypt, well, they did so after God had brought ten plagues upon Israel. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. Among all of Egypt, all Egyptians, every family suffered the loss of the firstborn, even their animals. But God gave them the Passover ceremony. And when the angel came and brought death upon those in judgment, he passed over the sons of Israel. They put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And they passed over the sons of, he passed over the sons of Israel. But what he said in Exodus 13, it says this in the first two verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. It belongs to me. Why is this? Because there was a trade. God says, I'm not going to destroy your firstborn, but what's going to happen is they belong to me just like the firstborn of Egypt belonged to me. But instead of destroying them, I now own them. They are mine. They belong to me. They are my possession. They are my possession I'll read starting in verse 11 of Exodus 13. When the Lord brings you in the land of the Canaanite as he swore to you in your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 14, when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? You shall say to him with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So the sacrifice that's offered for this firstborn son who belongs to the Lord is to redeem them back from what would be a sacrifice. Not that God is asking for a human sacrifice of some kind. This was the kind of thing that he that he reproved the evil nations around them for. But the point is, the firstborn belongs to the Lord, and the sacrifice enables them to continue to maintain that relationship and to go on. He is being presented to the Lord along with this sacrifice, and it is in this way that Jesus was presented to the Lord. Now, it doesn't really go on beyond that to say what all the significance was of being presented to the Lord. It just emphasizes that he belonged to the Lord and this is what God did and Mary and Joseph were following these instructions. Now if we zoom out we'll see that there's something else going on here because other than the naming of Jesus this is all just sort of -of run-of-the-mill law of Moses kind of stuff. The mother's purification, the child being presented to the Lord as the firstborn but there's something else here going on that the story is really about. Certainly it shows Mary's faithfulness and Joseph's faithfulness. Certainly it shows that Jesus was doing all that the law required of him to do, even though he wasn't the one doing it. But there is something else here, which is just simply this. Jesus was being brought to the temple for an encounter with those who would tell people who he was. Jesus was being brought to the temple for the striking events that now follow. So when Jesus is brought to the temple for the events of this passage, he is just over 40 days into his earthly life, just over six weeks old. But he's about to encounter a couple of people on the opposite end of the age spectrum. Those who have lived a very, very long time. The first of those, and the one that we're going to hear from this morning, is a man named Simeon. And this is the second part of what we're looking at. Simeon's testimony about Jesus. Simeon's testimony about Jesus. Now it says there was a man... In Jerusalem whose name was Simeon look there was a man he says he wants our attention to be drawn to this one and then he draws attention to Simeon's background what was he like it says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon this man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him he was righteous and devout he says this describes someone fundamentally the idea of being devout uh, describes the idea of caution or concern It means that you are concerned about a matter or even anxious about something. That's kind of the root idea. And when it has this focus on godliness and character, it emphasizes a deep and abiding concern to do what pleases God. It refers, as one dictionary puts it, to a, quote, reverent awe in the presence of God or the fear of God. To be devout is to be someone who is deeply concerned for what God thinks. There's a lot of time that we spend worrying about what other people think isn't there i wonder what they think about me what do they think about that thing i said i wish i hadn't done that i wish i hadn't worn that i wish i hadn't said that we can drive ourselves crazy thinking about what our impression was with other people because we think they can give us something or take something away from us or it's going to be unpleasant the next time we're around and we're anxious about it and we we go crazy But here this describes someone who has cultivated a life where he's eagerly concerned about what god thinks about him now this isn't that he walks around as someone who is always afraid that god is going to strike him down this is not the way that someone uh, who feared god walked around because they understood that god is compassionate They understood that to fear God doesn't mean that you have a crippling fear of ever doing anything wrong. In fact, when Jesus tells uh, a parable later on, there is a man who excuses his inactivity on the basis of saying, I knew you were a hard man. I knew what you were like as a master. And Jesus says, that's no good excuse. You should have just put the money in the bank if you were worried about all of this. You should have gotten some interest, gotten some return. You should have done something. You're just making excuses. And we often do this and we will excuse not doing what God says because we're saying, well, this doesn't please him all the way or what if I have wrong motives or what if I don't do this exactly right? Simeon wouldn't have represented that kind of thing. It's just that he always thought about what God wanted. He didn't always think about what God wanted and say it's never going to be right at all. There's no point in acting. He was instead devout and it says righteous, which means that he did act. He did do things that were righteous. He did have a godly character. This is the kind of person that is to be emulated. And it's the kind of person who has credibility when he speaks. Luke is pointing this out in addition to what, the fact that he comes by virtue of the Spirit of God giving him the words to say. Simply to show that this is a very, very credible witness. We might also note here that he is commended as someone who is very concerned about what God thinks. There are those out there who would say that certain people are too scrupulous about keeping God's word. They say that they take God's word too seriously. They need to just ease up a little bit. What would that person say about Simeon? That person would say, Luke, I don't think you're right about him. That guy's a little bit too far. He's a little too intense. He's a little bit crazy. He's got a little too much religion. It's not what God says. And it's not what we should think either. We should... ...follow the pattern of such a person. But that's not really the main point here. The point is commending him and showing that he is a credible witness. Uh, he's someone who not only had godly character, but he had a godly hope. He, Luke points out his hope. He was looking for the consolation of Israel looking for and the idea is not so much of searching for something we all know what this is like when you've lost something and you're searching for it and you're looking all around and turning everything upside down to find it rather this is looking to the horizon for something to arrive you know what this is like when you're meeting up with someone that you haven't seen in a really long time and you arrange the time and you get there and you're sitting at the restaurant or at the park bench or whatever it is and you're saying where are they which direction are they going to come from Some of you might not know what that's like because they tell you every detail on their phone on the way there. I'm over here at this spot and I'll be there in 32 seconds. Oh, I'm tracking you right now. I can see you on the phone. But there was a time when you had to wonder, where are they coming from? And you're eagerly anticipating. You're looking around and you're saying, when will they get here? When will this person get here? And you're filled with expectation and hope. With Simeon, it was even a step further. Not just the arrival of someone for a temporary meeting, but rather the entire new way of life that God had promised a new and permanent different reality the consolation of Israel which would come in conjunction with nothing other than the kingdom of God he was looking for everything to change this was his hope he knew that when everything comes this was going to be different and again, he sets an example for us. This is what we should be hoping for. This is what we should be looking for. We shouldn't just be righteous in our character because that will make us happier in this life or it will make our relationships easier or it eases our conscience. But we should be righteous because we are looking out for the one who is going to make us righteous when he comes. Everyone, First John tells us, who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. We should long to be righteous because we long for the coming of the kingdom of God. In which there will be no sin and all of our problems will be removed. We also find his helper. His character is hope and his helper. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Old Testament language to describe this constant state. Where the spirit of God would come to dwell upon certain people. And this was the constant state of his life. The language indicates this wasn't just a uh, momentary kind of thing but this was the way that he lived he was particularly empowered by God and then finally we see his promise it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ this message then is authoritative and certain he had been given a prophetic message by the Holy Spirit This is not, by the way, the kind of thing that people sometimes ascribe today to the Holy Spirit. Well, I think that the Spirit is telling me to do this. Or I sense the Spirit leading me to this. Or, you know, I think God is telling me that Christ is going to be here. That is not the way that the Holy Spirit speaks Now or then, he has never spoken in that way. It was revealed to him very clearly. This particular content, it had been revealed that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Very specific chronology. This would happen before this other thing would happen. And he would see this particular person. This is the way that the Spirit reveals things to people. Not by hunches. Not by feelings. Not by general inclinations. Not by sort of thinking things, not by mere coincidences, but rather there was a way in which very specific discernible content that could not be misunderstood was communicated to him. And he got the message. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see one thing before he saw something else. He would see two things, but they would come in a certain order. The second would be death, and the first would be the Lord's Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if I was uh, in this position, being probably less godly than Simeon, I might say something like, you know, maybe you could, like, let me live a long time and hold off for a while until you send this one because, you know, once Jesus comes, now I know I'm on the clock. I'm on the clock when the Christ comes. But that wasn't the way he thought because he had this godly perspective. He wanted to see Christ. He was eager to see Christ. And so he's looking out. Where is he coming from? What's, who is he going to be? like the old testament prophets who said they where what person or time is this going to be when is the christ going to come the one who's going to suffer and be glorified first peter one so we don't know how long he'd had this information but we know he had been looking and he was looking and it had been revealed to him and the the language here the the way that the the sentence is structured is very powerful the way that luke does this it's It had been revealed. And you have a combination of actually a couple of different verbs that indicate one thing, uh, indicate, first of all, that there is a prophetic message from God that came and is unchanged and is permanently binding. And this is simply the way that it is. It had been revealed. It had been revealed, so this is now fixed, it's permanent, the promise is unchanging. But it's also, there's language here to indicate that this was the ongoing state of the way that things were, and it characterized the life that Simeon lived, and it characterized the way that he saw everything. And so it's an ongoing situation in which this word had been permanently laid down. That's kind of the idea. And you can imagine how this would have affected the day-to-day life of someone like Simeon. Um, We went on vacation a couple weeks ago, and I put a hold on our mail delivery. Have you ever done that? Um, And the idea is that your mail doesn't get delivered while you're gone. Uh, Unfortunately, the idea in this case is also that your mail doesn't get delivered once you're back either, because uh, I selected the option to have it all delivered upon our return, and I'm still waiting for all of the accumulated mail to come. There's a claim in, and I've emailed and talked to people, and hopefully it's coming. I keep checking day by day, wondering where it is I go to the mailbox and I'm not sure each day whether I should have more hope or less that it's coming you know maybe it's closer salvation is closer to when we first believe but is the mail closer than when it first started being looked for I'm not really sure um, I've never had an issue before and uh, I've always had good experiences with our mail carriers but I do know one thing which is that the promise of the Holy Spirit is more reliable than the United States Postal Service and so I look and I look and I look and I say wait When is this going to come? When is this going to come? But I also have the question: Is it going to come? Like, do I know for sure that my mail has not been sent off to somewhere else by accident or dropped off a truck? I I don't really know. I don't know for certain that it's coming, but I'm still looking every day. When is it coming? When's it going to show up? But it wasn't so with Simeon. Simeon wouldn't go looking and saying, "Well, maybe I should give up on this because it's been a while." He knew he was not going to be disappointed by this. He knew that God's promise was going to come to pass because it was a promise of God. And he says, if I have not died yet, then the promise is still valid. And I am not going to die until I see him. Well, lo and behold, now it happens. And we have Simeon's arrival. Or you might call this Simeon's encounter with Jesus. Verse 27 and 28. He came in the spirit to the temple he came to the spirit in the spirit to the temple. It's a, a phrase that's um, maybe not one we would commonly use, but it shows up a few times in the scripture. What does it mean that he came in the spirit? Um, sometimes this language of in the spirit can refer to a, a kind of agency, like by means of this. This takes place, so the Spirit led him there. And there probably is some component of that, but I think the better way to understand this is much like what John said in the book of Revelation. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. There's some condition that it would be hard to define or even to understand. And maybe even if you saw it, you couldn't necessarily tell, but it's where the Spirit of God has sort of taken you, and you are now in a state where you're ready to prophesy. There's something that is about to take place. He is in the Spirit. And so it was, for example, David spoke in the spirit in Psalm 110 uh, when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus refers to that in that way, in the spirit. So here's the state that he finds himself in and he enters the temple and he is ready to go. He comes in, he's ready to prophesy, and then he runs into none other than the one about whom he would ultimately prophesy, the one for whom he was looking when the parents brought in the child, Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. All the stuff we read about in verses 22 to 24. Then he took him in his arms. And blessed God. He came into the temple. The temple that had been built up. And this temple where all this religious worship would take place. Which we'll uh, consider a little bit more detail next time. But he he takes him. He brings him into his arms. And he blesses God. He blesses God. He has a lot to say about jesus he has a lot to say about him he is going to describe jesus as the savior he's going to describe him as the light to the nations and the glory of israel we'll have to look into those details next week but what does he do even before all of that he blesses god he praises him he says god you are great he recognizes what god has done for him he is thankful and he brings him praise and glory and honor because god has made good on his word, and on his promise. This is uh, appropriate, isn't it, as a way to enter into communion, our time of communion, because this is uh, what the cup is that we are participating in. It's what the bread is. It's referred to, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 10 as the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing. Why? Because when the Lord Jesus had taken these things, he gave thanks, or he blessed God. He blessed God. Uh, I want to consider as we do turn to communion and uh, as we consider this just for a moment before we partake together. I I just would like to to think about a passage that uh, has some ramifications for us concerning the cross, the the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Galatians chapter 6, Galatians 6, verses 11 to 14. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul's writing to Galatian Christians. They were Gentiles. There were some people who said, yeah, you can believe in Christ for salvation by faith, but you have to follow the law too. And you have to be circumcised, keep the Sabbath day, eat certain foods, abstain from certain foods. And Paul says they're trying to do this, but the reason why they're doing this is because if they don't, they are going to suffer by virtue of either being associated with you or by not actually telling you and not agreeing with the message of those who are going to persecute them. Saying, you know, if we can just get you circumcised, well, at least then you'll have favor with the unbelievers. But he says, no, he sees through what they're doing. And he says, for those who are circumcised, don't even keep the law themselves. It's not like they're the law keepers, but, then they, desire, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They want to be seen as something because of what they have done. In other words, they're ministering because they want the approval of who? Other people. The cross takes us the other direction. It takes us to someone who is like Simeon, righteous and devout, concerned to please God. And he says, but may it never be that I would boast, Paul says, except in one place, which is where? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a strange thing to boast in, isn't it? To boast in the cross to boast in the instrument of death to boast in the shame that comes with that and yet that's exactly what it is because Paul says he recognizes what Christ has done in the cross he boasts he glories in the fact that Christ has died for him he glories in the fact that his sins are taken away he glories in the fact that he doesn't have to make a good showing in the flesh He doesn't have to worry about what everyone else thinks. That's why he says through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't have to care anymore about gaining their approval. So he says I boast in the cross. We should do this. It's too easy for us to just go on and on and try to be concerned about what people think about us. It's too easy to try to accomplish things in life and To try to do the things that will get us favor. Or to be seen as important. To be well liked by others. And it is also too easy to forget. To glory actively. To boast actively in the cross. To go around and to tell people. I am so glad. That I am a sinner who has been saved by grace. I'm not pleased that I was a sinner. But I am joyful that Jesus came to save sinners like me. This is what the cross does for us. So, as we partake of communion together, I hope that you will look at this as something that speaks about where we really find our importance. Where do we find the focus of what we are excited about? Where do we find the focus of our identity and of what we think about, whether we think about what people think about us? This is what we need to consider. And so, we boast not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments not in notches in our belt for bringing other people to our side of various arguments or being our followers, but in the cross and the fact that Jesus Christ, the son of God, died for us. This one who was coming into the world that we learned about in Luke as the son is the one who gave himself for us. If this is not the case for you, I hope that you will understand that this is essential, that the cross is is the only way of salvation. Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. The, the cross is the only way because our sins have to be taken away for us to come to God. You can't just go to God and be a worshiper of God and even try to do so with a changed life unless your sins are out of the way because otherwise there is a record of guilt that you have before God. And God has that against you. And until that's dealt with, there can be no peace between you and him. But when it is dealt with, And when you've been reconciled to God through the cross by faith in Jesus Christ, then you have perfect peace with him. And you can come to him and you can worship him in truth.